Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. Welcome, welcome. Take your Bibles out if you would please and turn to Luke chapter 9 as we continue our study. A spiritual cost and benefit analysis. Doesn't that sound just, that just sounds like an exciting title, doesn't it? When you hear the words uh, cost and benefit uh, analysis, does that just rise you up from any slumber or sleep? Or maybe it's putting you to sleep. A cost benefit analysis is a systematic process that businesses use to analyze which decisions make and which to forego. It's bean counting. Should we make the Pinto? Remember, remember, remember the, the Ford Pinto? My wife used to own one. It came out that they were very dangerous and found out that it's, if they were hit in a certain way, they would blow up. The gasolines would blow up. Well, they had done a cost and benefit analysis and found out that it was, it was worth it for them to build this dangerous car because the, the, the cost of paying for life insurance or for uh, um, lawsuits was less than what the profits were going to be. They did a cost and benefit and said, yes, lives are worth less than how much money we're going to make out of that. A cost-benefit analysis, it sums up the potential rewards expected from a situation or an action and then subtracts the cost, the total cost associated with taking that action. So it's, it's looking and saying, is it worth it? Is the cost worth what I'm going to get back in return? In today's passage, Jesus proceeds to present to his disciples a cost and benefit analysis of declaring that Jesus is the Christ. If you believe that, then is it worth it? There's other, we're going to see that there's, there's, some, um, there's some cost to declaring that truth. Last week we saw that Peter confessed that Jesus is Christ the Messiah along with the rest of the disciples. And at this point, they have been witnessing something wonderful, supernatural, and, and, and extraordinary. Disciples believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but they're still unsure of what that means, or even what his mission is. Especially as Jesus reveals that he, as the Messiah, must suffer, be rejected by men, killed, and then raised on the third day. Now, to confess that Jesus is the Christ of God comes at a very high price that you and I are going to see in our passage this morning. That price is self-denial. It's suffering and supplanting our dreams, our aspirations, and our affections with those of Christ. Yet we are called to understand that the price of doing so is much greater than the cost. It is worth, the rewards are great. The benefits vastly outweigh the loss. In our passage this morning, Jesus gives us the spiritual cost and benefit analysis of acknowledging and accepting that he truly is the Christ of God. So with that, we're in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Let's read that sentence together. And he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. So Father, there it is in black and white. There is a command that we're called to respond to. It is a requirement that we must follow. Father, it's a challenge that we must accept. But Father, we want to see if we have done so. Father, is it worth it 
to follow you, to do these things? Is, are the benefits, do they outweigh the cost? Father, I pray that you work in our hearts. We thank you for this passage that Luke has preserved through the Holy Spirit for us this morning. It has passed through the 2,000 years. It has given life to many. It has sustained those that just as we read in Hebrews 11, who were torn apart, sawn, uh, sawn in half. Father, who gave their lives because they found it worth following you. May we do so this morning as well. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. In this one little sentence, we read that Jesus is going to require a personal response and demands complete devotion of his disciples. The personal response is that of acknowledging that he is the Christ. He is the Christ of God, the Messiah, the anointed one of God. And complete devotion is set forth in three commands. He wanted complete devotion. Jesus doesn't want just part of you or just a part-time disciple. He's asking much more of us. And as we see, it follows three commands. First, every disciple, if he's going to follow Christ, must deny himself. That's what he says there in that passage. Now, to deny means to disown, repudiate, renounce, and disregard. And what does he say? If anyone would come to me, let him repudiate himself. Let him disregard himself. Let him deny himself to renounce himself. Those are strong words. Daryl Block remarks that the essence of discipleship is actually humility before God. And it expresses itself as self-denial. Now, this right here, as I'm sharing right now, is counterculture to the world. For now, the world is not about self-denial, but about self-identification, right? Self-improvement, a self-lifting one else, self-esteem. But here he says, you need to forget all about that. It's about denying of yourself. To confess Christ is to acknowledge his authority and his true identity as the Lord and the King of all things. And if you have a king, then he must have subjects who obey his rule. To deny ourselves is to repudiate our rights and privileges. It's to surrender them to serve someone greater than ourselves. One pastor remarks that as Christians, we will not set our desires and wills against the right Christ has to our lives. And so let me ask you that this morning as we just continue on this. Do you see that Christ has the rights over your life, your dreams and aspirations? Scripture informs us that we, as, once, as we were once slaves to sin and, and our passions. It says now that we are slaves to Christ and righteousness. Now that's not a good word, slavery, today. And, and I agree. Uh, the American slavery form of slavery was wrong. It, it was sinful. It was against Scripture. There is, no, um, there is no words for it. And for those who followed it and, and, have, and, and try to use scripture, they were wrong. It's unbiblical. However, the slavery that the Bible speaks of is one in which we are slaves to Christ. We are under his rule. Our life is no longer ours, but his to command. What Jesus is calling for is a radical self-renouncement. A radical self-renouncement of our claim to the throne. And a denial of ourselves as the objects of our admiration, self-esteem, self-improvement, self-identity. 
the ESV uh, study Bible editors, they note that self-denial means letting go of our self-determination, determining our own path and our own journey and replacing that with the obedience to and dependence on the Messiah. Get this, and you may want to make this as a note. It involves giving up a self-centered life for a life of self-sacrifice. Let me give that to you again. Being a disciple involves giving up a self-centered life for a life of self-sacrifice. Now, I will share with you, all of us have a self-centered life. You say, no, 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 I, I'm, I, live for my, I live for my wife. I, I live for my children. I live for my husband. But yet, and again, it all comes down to you. You want to do that for your desires, for your purposes, for your edification. So giving up a self-centered life or a life of self-sacrifice is something that we are called to do, commanded to do, required to do. But it is not easy. It's more than just developing self-control and self-discipline. You see, we are called to love Christ with our whole heart. But you may ask, what is our heart? And it's more than just a muscle. We use the word heart. I love them with my heart for all sorts of things, right? What's the, you know, apple pie, Chevrolet, and America, right? Well, it's much more than that. Here, here's an example. Some of you have heard me say this lately. Our heart consists of our will. The things that you and I choose to do. It involves our thoughts, the way in which we, we view the world and the way that we filter things out and help us make those choices. But it's also our affections, those things that we love, the things that motivate us to make the choices and to think the way that we do. So when it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, it says, love the Lord your God with all your affections, with all your thoughts and with all your will. That's very difficult. But the Bible tells us that our heart, our thoughts, our will, and our affections are disordered. That they are wicked. That they are evil. So what Christ is calling us to is to say, you need to give that all to me. And I will give you a what? A new heart. A new will. A new way of thinking. And new affections. Turn to Philippians chapter 3 if you would. In this passage, the Apostle Paul exemplifies one that has done this. He has denied himself and living a life of self-sacrifice. When he writes of his heritage, in Philippians chapter 3 in the New Testament, starting in verse 3, Paul writes this. He says, for we are of the circumcision. Now, what he's speaking there, uh, he's saying, I am a Jew. And in those days, as well as today, to be circumcised as Jew is to be one who is chosen by God, the, the apple of God's eye. And all of those are correct. To be of circumcision is to be one that is not a Gentile. And who are Gentiles? Everyone who's not a Jew. To the Jew, the circumcision, to be uncircumcised was to be a heathen, a pagan. You were considered dogs. He says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And but, he says here, he says, but we put no confidence in the flesh. Though myself, I have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, in other words, for confidence in who they are. You know, that, that self-determination. 
that self-confidence. He says, look at me, I, I stand above everyone else. He says, I have more reason to believe in myself than any of y'all. He says, look at this, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. I was one who'd, who understood the law and taught the law. Verse six, as to my zeal, as to my passions, to my affections, I was a persecutor of the church. As to righteous under the law, I was blameless. I kept the law, all 365 of them. But look what he says in verse seven. But whatever gain I had for being a Hebrew of the Hebrews, of being a Pharisee, and one who thought himself as righteous, he says, I counted as what? Loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul does this self-cost, this spiritual cost-benefit analysis. And he says, in the end run, yes, I have all this going for me. But in the end, the, no, the, the, the wealth of knowing Christ surpasses it all. I wonder if you and I could write this same type of sentence. That you're willing to give up all that you are. Because Christ is much greater. Going back to Philippians chapter 3. Verse 5, the last part of that verse. Or verse 8, I'm sorry. He says, for his sake, speaking of Christ, I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them as rubbish. King James might have dung. Just worthless. In order that I might gain Christ. That's what self-denial is. Recognizing that who you are, what you have, whatever abilities, intellectual, uh, whatever capacities you have. You're ready to give them up for the sake of Christ. Secondly, to follow Christ, every disciple must take up his cross. And not only take up his cross, but take it up daily. To take up a cross means to be ready to encounter any extremity and any voluntary suffering. The cross, you and I must remember, was an instrument of extreme punishment that was reserved for the worst of criminals, terrorists. It involved a long and cruel death. You died, uh, not because you were on the cross, but, but by, by, by assist, uh, I'm not going to be able to say it, by not being able to breathe. Thank you. To carry a cross was a one-way journey. You didn't carry it back. You carried it one way. Jesus qualifies his command by noting that this must be done daily, every day. There are no days off. There is no breaks. There is no compromise with the world or your own sinful desires that still remain in us. It's not like, hey, I'm tired of carrying this cross. Let me go and have a cup of tea. Let me go and binge watch Netflix for a little bit. Oh, wait, I, I need to check my, in, my, my Instagram for a moment. No. It is to continually to carry it, to suffer, to work our way towards Christ. We're to give no occasion for the flesh to enjoy its sinful pursuits. It is saying no to sin 
24-7. Taking up the cross and following Jesus paints a word picture of a man who's condemned, who's forced to carry his own cross to his own execution. In essence, Jesus is telling his disciples to pick up an instrument of torture, knowing where it leads. In our scripture reading, we read of many who did so. The cross evokes a vivid and horrifying image of the death march with all its shameful publicity. It was not done in the dark of night. It was done where all could see. By evoking this imagery, theologian Richard France notes that R.T. France notes that Jesus is calling for a radical abandonment of one's own identity and self-determination and a call to join the march to the place of execution. Similar to what Moses did when he said he did not consider it worthy to be, or consider it worthy, worth to be the, daughter, the, the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose rather the reproach of Christ to be with the Israelites, his brothers and sisters. A disciple or a follower of Jesus is one who denies himself through picking up the cross, ready to sacrifice all, to suffer, to die if need be. It involves a radical choice that goes against our very nature. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, writes that when Christ calls a man or a woman, he bids him come and die. Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor during Hitler's rise to power in Germany. He uniquely understood the cost of discipleship as he founded underground seminaries and wrote literature to encourage the German Christians during the rise of Nazism. He was imprisoned and sent to a concentration camp and eventually hung after being accused in a plot to assassinate Hitler. Come and die. Third, after denying themselves and taking up the cross, they are now able to follow Jesus. They are now qualified to do so. And that is what Jesus is calling for. He is calling for a single-minded pursuit of the kingdom of God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all of these things, and his righteousness and all of these things will be added. But first, seek the kingdom of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ demands our full attention. The apostle Paul declares in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of God. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, then also to the Greek. You and I must recognize that this call to, to follow him is important. It is essential. For without the gospel. There is no hope for our families, for our friends, for our children, for those in our sphere of influence. Going back to Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his wonderful influential book, The Cost of Discipleship, he writes this. I have it here on the monitor, I believe. He writes that costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again. The gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. That's the grace that we are saved with. It is costly because it cost a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. 
Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were brought with a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. The analysis is that it's much richer to follow Jesus than to deny him. Above all, he writes, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. So God says, Jesus is saying here, that if you believe that I'm Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, the son of God, then you must deny yourself. You must take up your cross daily and you must follow me. Simple. One little sentence. Jesus sums, what it, sums up what it means to be a disciple. Unfortunately, that is not the gospel that many are hearing today. It's not the call that many are given. Now, after sharing the cost with the disciples, and the cost is very high, Jesus now moves to the benefit side of the analysis. He gave us the cost. Now let's look at the benefits of following him in verse 24. Jesus says, for whoever would save his life is going to lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. When Jesus says to save his life, save means to keep safe, to preserve, to rescue, and to bring in health. That's what it means when he says, I've come to seek and to save the lost. He's come to restore, to bring the health, to preserve it, to rescue our lives, to restore that which was broken. While when he says to lose our life, it means to destroy, to kill. Without Christ, we are lost and our lives are broken by sin. And we are destined to die and to spend eternity in hell. I, I know that is unpopular. But you and I must not deconstruct that. Jesus spoke about hell more than he spoke about heaven and the kingdom of heaven. Hell is real. There's an old song that says, black is black, white is white, hell is hot and sin ain't right. Little ditty there. And there's truth to there. There are many who want to deny that hell is real, deny that it's not really a place or disregard it or, or try to limit it. But hell is very, very real. We're going to see that later as we continue through our, our, our study of Luke. To live without Christ is to live with no hope. It's to live with a crumbling foundation. It's to be blinded to the beauty of Christ and the Creator. It just blows my mind that those who look through the Hubble, uh, uh, the Hubble telescope or, or through the, the minute microscope into the organisms of life and the beauty of creation, and they look and see these beautiful, wonderful, magnificent, uh, complex things and say that there must not be a creator. How can that be so? But they're blinded. We're like monkeys with a hand stuck in a jar. Have you ever seen that? Experiments they do, they throw a banana in a jar. The monkey walks up, puts his hand in the jar, grabs the, grabs the, 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 the banana, but then he can't pull his hand out of the jar. 
and he can't figure it out. So he's walking around with a banana in his hand, but his jar is still there and he, and he can't do it, not realizing that all he has to do is do what? Let go of the banana. And his hand comes out of the jar. Well, you and I are like that. We're walking around with our hands in the sin jar, holding on to our sin, wondering why we can't get rid of this jar. What it shows is that we're living lives of futility, of no purpose, missing what God has for us. We're running to and fro like mice on a wheel or like chickens with our heads cut off. However, Jesus rewards his devoted followers. That's the cost and benefit. Yes, follow me, do these three things, and I will give you something much greater. But to you and I, the desires of our flesh and the passions of our sin are too big. Madison, uh, you know, we talk about that Madison Street has, has, just, has just taken all of our desires and magnified them so much that they're so big that we can't see anything else. Jesus points out that in an investment in him truly pays dividends. There is no taxes on it. There is no inflation in following Christ. Jesus presents his disciples a grand bargain. I'm gonna, you're going to take a loss in this temporal life by giving up those things that you desire the most. But I'm going to give you something greater for eternity. Discipleship is costly. But as we see here through scripture, that it is worth the price. Just as Jesus' rejection on earth is going to lead to vindication and glory in heaven, that we see that, those that choose to follow Christ should expect the same experience. Missionary Jim Elliott, who was slaughtered along with four other men in trying to bring and share the gospel with an indigenous tribe in Ecuador, he wrote this famous line, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Think about that for a, ma- for a moment. Do you want a million dollars today? Yes. But you will not take any of that into eternity. And that's what he's saying. I will be willing to lose my life to gain that which cannot be lost. That great pearl of, or that pearl of great price. <clears throat> Excuse me, that hidden treasure. The problem is, is you and I do not view life that way. Jim Elliott and his companions did so. And lost their life. Great book, the gates of, Through the Gates of Splendor. There's a movie uh, uh, called that as well. I encourage you to watch or read his story. He understood exactly what Jesus is saying there. Whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. I pray that there's some Jim Elliots here. I pray that myself will be a Jim Elliot, that I will count the cost and find it worth it. Take your Bibles and turn, if you would please, to Mark chapter 10. In Mark chapter 10, in this passage, we read of a young man that was given this grand bargain. He was challenged by Christ. 
But he was so blinded in his possessions. Verse 17 of Mark chapter 10, we read this. And as he's setting out on his journey, speaking of Jesus and the disciples, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So he is looking for that great treasure, okay? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So in other words, he's understanding that, that there's something special about Jesus and he, and he wants to know what Jesus' answer is. So Jesus says in verse 19, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. In other words, these are the love your neighbor parts of the Old Testament. In verse 20, the young man said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Well, that's probably debatable. But in his eyes, he had done all that was required of him. And then Jesus looking at him, look at this, there's this phrase, I don't know if you ever noticed it, but loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and, in heaven, and come and follow me. So he's pretty much saying what he's saying here in Luke. And he's putting it to the test to this young man. Verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He would rather keep that which he will eventually lose rather than to gain that which he cannot lose. I know that was complicated. Tongue twister. But he counted the cost. He did the, the spiritual benefit and, and, and cost and benefit analysis. And he said in his heart, God is not worth it. Following Christ is not worth it. I'd rather have my possessions. And, 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 I, and I pray that there is none here that are here this morning or, or watching me, listening to me later, that you are not like this young man. This young man, Jesus was not enough. The great concern is not only does Jesus reward the faithful, but you and I need to recognize that he also judges those that reject him. I pray that there are none here listening to me today that are disheartened by these words. For if you are, you're bringing judgment upon yourself. But I pray that you may be emboldened and strengthened and ready to courageously abandon all things in order to gain Christ. I pray that your name may be written as well as along with those from Hebrews chapter 11 in the Heroes Hall of Faith. In, 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 uh, not in scripture, but in heaven. You and I must understand that there is a day of reckoning that is coming. When Christ will judge the living and the dead for all that they have done. And it will not matter how much money you have acquired. It doesn't matter how much investments you have accumulated. It will not matter how many works of charities that you have donated to or volunteered in. It will not matter what your heritage or your status in life. All of those will be lost. In verse 27, Jesus gives the disciples a word of encouragement. When he says, but I will tell you truly, there are some standing here that will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. This is a mysterious question or mysterious statement that he's given here. But it's going to be revealed eight days later or next Sunday if you're here. 
As Jesus will be transfigured before Peter, James, and John, they will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. They will hear the words of the Father's approval as he confirms Jesus' identity as the Son of God. This points to the final return of Christ at the end of the age when he comes not as the suffering servant, but as the conquering prince who slain the dragon and won the girl. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 and 28, we learn learn this. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, are you ashamed of Christ or are you not? So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who have eagerly waited for him. For those who have denied themselves, take up their cross daily and are following Christ. It is they who are eagerly waiting and seeking for Christ. Now, we are indebted, as we come and just consider this, we're indebted to the wisdom and ministry of J.C. Ryle. He is a British pastor in the late 19th century. And one of his gems of a message, of a sermon, is what does it cost to be a true Christian? And so we're going to use that this morning to kind of look at it. What does it truly mean to deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and follow Christ? He opens up his sermon by admitting that, as you see here on the monitor, that it, that, that it costs much to be a true Christian. But who in his sound senses can doubt that it is worth any cost to have the soul saved? When the ship is in danger of seeking, the crew thinks nothing of casting overboard the precious cargo. When a limb is mortified, when it's dying, a man will submit to any severe operation and even to amputation to save his life. Surely a Christian should be willing to give up anything which stands between him and heaven. A religion that costs nothing is worth nothing. A cheap Christianity without the cross will prove in the end a useless Christianity without a crown. And I believe there are many that are practicing a cheap Christianity. He then answers his question, what does it cost to be a true, true, true Christian with four ways, I believe. Four ways or am I going to quick five? And I'll go through these quickly. Number one, it's going to cost your self-righteousness. You and I need to cast away all of our pride and our high thoughts and conceit of our own goodness. For you're here today thinking, I am a good person. I can almost hear you saying it in your mind and your heart. But I'm not that bad. I, I've been saved. I, I, I accepted Christ when I was a young man. But yet your life is not mirrored or exemplified one who's denied himself. Of one who has taken up his cross and following Christ. You've been following your own dreams and aspirations. Your own, maybe it's your own anger, bitterness, resentment. Maybe it's your lust. Maybe it's pleasure experiments. Maybe it's some type of a drug or addiction. Maybe it's just following your own path, being your own king. But you need to recognize that you cannot work your way to heaven. The Bible tells us that all of our righteousness are as what? Filthy rags. We come short of the glory of God. No matter how good you think you are or how much good you can do, it is never going to be enough. We see that with the young man. I've done all these things. But you haven't loved God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. We must be willing to give up all trust in our own morality and our own respectability. In all of our good works. Number two, it's going to cost 
our sins. Take your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 3. You and I, now you say, well, well, yeah, of course I want to give up my sin. But before, I, before you say amen to that, think of this. You need to be willing to give up every habit and practice which is wrong in God's sight. It might mean you need to go through your Netflix and Hulu account. Start deleting some shows. It might mean you need to listen to some different types of music. Choose some different types of friends and some activities. It's going to mean denying yourself in your anger, in your pride, in your jealousy. You got to go face to face against it. You need to quarrel with it. You need to break it off. You need to fight it, crucify it, uh, crucify it, and labor to keep it under control. Doesn't matter what the world may say. We must follow scripture. And we need to do this honestly and fairly, recognizing that we need to fight against our sin. We need to bring into captivity all those things that raise up against Christ. And it's not just those public ones that everyone knows. It's those secret ones that you're hiding from your spouse, from your friends, from even yourself. Colossians chapter 3, look at verse 5. Paul writes, put to death whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, covetousness, which is desiring other things. And I always tell parents this. I learned this late in life. Be careful of advertisements. I think Brandon and Paige have done a good job there. They, they, they recognize that YouTube has a lot of kids' toys on there, and they're always pushing them. And there's some, there's some one of the richest kids in the world is, is one who has his own YouTube channel where he just plays with toys. Toy companies pay him to play with toys. What is Sears Magazine? Remember those? Sears Magazine, JCPenney? Window shopping, what does it do? It trains you for covetousness. Desiring that which you do not have. That's what a social influencer on Instagram wants to do. You can have, I'm having this dream vacation. I'm wearing these clothes. You can too, if you just pay. And so you and I are not denying ourselves, but we're giving ourselves He's saying, he goes on, which is idolatry, covetousness as idolatry. Desiring the lotto, to win the lotto is idolatry. You're looking for something other than God to supply your needs. You're trusting in something else. He says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, he says, you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. away." Now look at here, men, ladies, anger, wrath, Malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge. To follow Christ means that you must cost, you must cast away your sin. It will cost you your sins. Those little pet sins that you go to when you're tired, when you're angry, that you go to for relief, to cope with. It's going to cost you. That sin. It's also going to cost you your love of ease. It's going to be pain and trouble to follow the cause of Christ. Just this morning, Brandon and I were watching Twitter, and there it is, a church is singing. What are they singing? On Christ the solid rock I stand. Jesus Christ. And as they're singing, here comes the police, ready to find them and arrest the pastor once again. It's going to cost you your ease. 
It's life is not about you. Picking up your cross and dying daily is going to be painful. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be inconvenient. It's going to cost you friends. It may cost you a seat at the table of public discourse. You may be canceled. Some have lost their jobs. Many have lost their friends. And many will lose their lives. That's what it costs to follow Christ. This pastor goes on, Pastor J.C. Ryle notes that anything that requires exertion and labor is entirely against the grain of our hearts. We don't want that. We want to take the easy path. But the soul can have no gains without pain. We understand that world wisdom there. I'm reminded of Paul's second letter to the Corinthian church when he writes that we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion against the knowledge of God and take into captivity every thought to obey Christ. Your sin will cry out, come and play with me. I will put your life at ease. I will make you comfortable. I will satisfy your thirst and hunger. But he hasn't called us to a life of ease. And then fourthly, it'll cost you the favor of the world. We spoke a little bit about this, but again, we need to recognize that the world will not love us. It will not be strange to be mocked, ridiculed, slandered, persecuted, and even hated. We must not be surprised to find opinions and practices in religion is despised and held up to scorn. We're living that right now in this day and age. It's very clear. But this teaching comes straight from John who writes in 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world, neither the things that are in the world. For the things that are in the world are not of the Father. Pastor J.C. Riles goes on to say I dare say this sounds hard. We naturally dislike unjust dealings and false charges and we think it very hard to be accused without cause. It's very difficult to be canceled, to be blocked, to be left behind. But let's recognize that we have a Savior who was despised and rejected of men, yet he opened not his mouth. To be a Christian will cost a man the favor of the world. Let us not be a church and a people who are looking for the favor of the world, but looking to please God. He concludes by stating that we must lay aside every distraction that keeps us from denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following Christ. Here on the monitor, he finalizes, he says, we must conclude or we must cast away everything that hinders us upon our road towards heaven. Amen? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the pride of life, the love of riches, pleasures and honors, the spirit of lukewarmness, that desire just to sit and do nothing, the carelessness and indifference about the things of God. And this this here uh, describes many times the American church. It may even describe you and your Christian life. All must be rooted out and forsaken if we are anxious for the prize. We must mortify or kill the deeds of the body. We must crucify our affections for this world. Why? Because that is what is required of discipleship. It is what is demanded and commanded by the Father. 
to come and follow Christ. Pastor John MacArthur states that the faithful effect of Christian life is not simply a great emotional adventure filled, filled with wonderful feelings and experiences. And I think that's what the American church is. Just make me feel good. Help me to walk out with a bounce in my step and knowing that, hey, I can do something today. Give me three things that I can make myself a better person. Or I can make my wife a better person. Get my children to obey. Have better income. Do better at jobs. The Christian life is much more than just a wonderful experience. It is a humble pursuit of God's truth. And the conformity to it. Yet why do so many professing Christians burn so brightly only to crash and burn over time? Why do they succumb so easily to sin and forsake the faith? Why do they not overcome or persevere? Why do we see people struggling up, giving, giving up a self-centered life for a self-sacrificed life? Well, it's difficult. Someone may say, why don't Christians in America look like disciples in the Bible or even the disciples in the last century? Where are those who count it better to lose what they cannot keep and to gain what they cannot lose? Where are the Jim Elliots of the world? Where are the Apostles Paul, Apostle Paul? Where are these men and women? Well, I think we've just gotten to a life of ease. David Platt, a pastor, he says, there's a disconnect between us, the first 21st century American church, and the rest of history. We have an unprecedented time of material blessings with a culture that's built on self-esteem, self-confidence, self-identity. And all these things, he says, begin to twist the gospel to be more self-centered. It pushes us to look inward and to rise up man. And I believe that's true for the most part. Generation after generation seems to be losing the great doctrines of Scripture. They're neglecting the commands of God's Word. And they're distracted by the cares of this world. One Christian lady that I do not know her name, I just have her, her name, I think, with an initial. She wrote this on, 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 a, on a, just past week on one of her tweets. I bless God for I don't know who she is or where she's from. But she says, as a Christian, I can make one of three choices in life. Now, this is a Christian. I can choose to carry my cross, which I believe we should. I can choose to drag my cross, or I can choose to sit and stare at my cross at self-pity. As an old me, look what Christ is requiring me to do. It's kind of like the child, right, who has to take out the garbage or pick up his room. We're dragging our feet. We're just shoulders are dipped. Regardless of my choice, my cross isn't going anywhere. Though I might add, someone who has that type of attitude of the last two may not be a Christian. For a Christian is one who's going to pick up his cross daily and carry it. One of my favorite Christian artists is Steve Green. I believe that he'll be the... Um, the worship leader in heaven. And he has a great song, I Will Serve the Lord. And that song captures well the testimony of the cloud of witnesses that we read about earlier from Hebrews chapter 12. 
in Hebrews 11, who counted the cost of serving Christ and found it worth it. The song simply says, There marches through the centuries the martyrs of the cross. Those who denied themselves, those who picked up their cross daily and followed Christ. It's all those who choose to follow Christ to suffer any loss. And though their journey led them through the shadow lands of death, though the song of their commitment they rehearsed with every breath, I will serve the Lord. I will serve the Lord my God. And if God should choose and my life I lose, and though my foe may slay me, I will serve the Lord. May we here at OVBC serve the Lord. Would you come and be a true, genuine disciple of the one who calls us to come and follow him? With every eye is closed and heads bowed just for a moment as the worship team makes their way and land in for pastor's prayer. I just want you to pause and consider the words of Christ the cost and benefit analysis of being a disciple of Christ. If you have not done so, I would call you today. We'd love to share you after services. You can email us, write to us, text us, call us. We want to share with you how you can be a true disciple of Christ and you can have eternal life. If you're here this morning and you are a disciple of Christ, but you're kind of dragging your cross, You're kind of complaining about the cross. You're struggling, denying yourself. Let us know. Let us pray for you. The Bible says to repent, to confess of that sin, and turn and count on him. Your eyes have gotten far off of what Christ has called you to do. But he can restore you. And to the Christian who is doing this today, be encouraged. It is worth the cross, or the cost of following Christ. Let us do so by the grace of God. Then would you come and share with us? We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help share the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.